Thanks, Anne. Please uh, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. We're going to be looking at chapters 13 to 15 together. Tick, 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 tick. You can't stop time's relentless march, can you? It just keeps ticking along. And sometimes you can feel like you're the fixed point in one of those time-lapse films. While everything else is speeding on around you, you're staying, your life seems to just stay at the same place. And when that happens, it's easy to start going to one's hopes and dreams. You know, the sorts of things, the life goals you set yourself um, for yourself years before, uh, the things you really thought you would have achieved by now, and you wonder if they're ever going to happen or if the opportunity has just slipped past and will never be had again. So when will it become simply will it? And time just keeps on ticking. Abram was 75 when God called him to travel to the promised land of Canaan and to bless all nations through him. And when he arrived in the land, a land already occupied... The Lord made this problem to Ab- um, promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. He said, to your offspring, your offspring, I will give this land. Abram was 75. When he received these momentous promises from God, a lot of his life had already ticked by. Well, since that time, time has ticked further. And some of those promises are borne out. So God did bless Abram greatly. And he blessed those who blessed Abram. And he cursed those who cursed, caused him harm, even if it was unwittingly. So, to catch up to where we are now, a famine hits Canaan at the end of chapter 12. And so Abram travels to Egypt. After he gets booted out of Egypt for deceiving Pharaoh about Sarai, he returns to Canaan and he settles again. But not before... Pharaoh was cursed by God and Abram himself had become greatly enriched. But in chapter 13, we see that that prosperity causes chaos. In time, his herdsmen and family quarrel with those of his nephew Lot. Basically, the land was not big enough for the both of them and their extensive possessions. So they agree to part ways and find their own space. Lot moves down to the Jordan Valley, Abraham stays in the hills of Canaan. But when Lot departs, the Lord appears to Abram again. And again, the Lord gets Abram to look at the land around him. Look everywhere, every direction. He says, look north, south and east and west, Abram. He says in chapter 13, verse 14, all the land that you see, I'm going to give you and to your offspring forever and your offspring will be as numerous as the dust of the earth that is a wonderful promise but then lot gets himself captured and abram rustles up some local mates and goes on a successful rescue mission defeating some powerful kings in the process i mean you you see what i mean right so abram is a success his name has become great another promise is being realized He's clearly a very wealthy man now, but he's also powerful. He's also respected. After his victory, kings are lining up to honour him 
But after all of this time, he, he is still a nomad, living in tents in a land firmly occupied by other people. You see, the battle in chapter 14 involved nine kings and a tenth, Melchizedek, turns up near the end. Each of these kings is going to have been ruling a city and its surrounding lands. Each king able to rustle up armies from the numerous inhabitants of their territory. Even Abram's own local allies were Amorite leaders. These people are everywhere and they don't seem to be going anywhere. And Abram still doesn't have any children. And the clock is ticking, ticking, ticking. Now, let me ask you, what would you think if you were Abram? What would you be starting to wonder? Sure, some things have gone largely well for you, but what about those promises? Would you still believe they were going to happen? How confident would you be? Well, at the end of chapter 14, the king of Sodom offers to give Abram a reward of all the goods that the other kings had stolen from Sodom, kind of a thank you gift to Abram for saving his bacon, basically. But Abram refuses. Abram says, I've made an oath to the Lord, to Yahweh, not to accept anything, not, not a thread or a sandal or a thong from a sandal, lest, lest that king would be able to have this boast that they made the great Abram great and rich, when in fact it was the Lord who had done it. And so, at this point, Abram seems to be holding firm in his trust of the Lord, for now. Abram knew he was personally blessed and his blessing extended to those around him. He had experienced the realisation of this aspect of the Lord's earlier promise to him. But as for the promise of descendants and the promise of the land, well, chapter 15 shows to us that he is certainly starting to ask some questions now. Now, in chapter 15, which was the one that was read to us, the chapter is divided into two and the first part of it deals with the promise of descendants and the second deals with the promise of the land. So, let's have a look at the first. It begins with this wonderful message of reassurance from the Lord. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, remember, Abram had just said no to the generous offer from the king of Sodom. Abram has taken a faithful stand to be the Lord's man and nobody else's. And so the Lord is quick to confirm Abram in this stand. He says, don't worry, I am your shield. I am looking after you, Abram, as I hope you've just seen. And your exceedingly great reward, I'm your, your warrior's payment, which is the sense of the original. Your warrior's payment is me, the Lord says to Abram. So that means you're right. You are right not to accept plunder from the king of Sodom because you don't need it. I am the creator of all things on this planet and you've got me as your God. But here is where the first of Abram's questions turn up. Verse 2, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, you've given me no children. And so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now, one thing we need to understand here is that childlessness in the ancient world was both an embarrassment and a misfortune. So it was an embarrassment because you were thought to be cursed by the gods. And it was a misfortune because you had no one from your own family to continue your name to inherit your property. Now, I remain childless. In the original language, it's quite emphatic, especially when you can listen to it on the voice of a nomad. He says, I am one walking childless. Furthermore, Abram can't hide his feeling that the Lord hasn't followed through on this earlier promise. Obviously, a promise that was really important to him. You have given me no children. Now, it's the same word, the word for offspring or seed. The same word that the Lord used when he promised him offspring, remember, as we just talked about, more numerous than the dust of the earth. And to whom he would give the land, that word. He's going, you haven't given him to me. And so when Abram says, what can you give me, God? He's kind of saying, look, you being my shield and great reward is lovely and all that. Don't think I don't appreciate it. But what is the point of this, of having all of this when I've got no one to pass it on to? See, Abram had been watching the clock and he knew what time it was. But the Lord's response is equally emphatic, no, no, it will not be this Eliezer guy. You will have a son from your own body as your heir. And then we get one of those famous and beautiful scenes um, from the Old Testament, verse 5. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. It's a, a fatherly, arm around the shoulders kind of moment. I said to you before that you would have descendants like the dust of the earth. Let me give you another picture, look at the stars. See the sheer multitude of them, the, the countless number of them. So shall your offspring be. I promised you descendants. I meant it then. I still mean it now. Stop watching the clock. How did Abram respond? Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. If you blinked, you'd miss it. If your mind wandered for an instant or if you dropped your pencil when Anne was reading the Bible earlier, you'd have missed it. But when it comes to significant one-liners, this tiny verse is in the top handful in the whole of the Bible. In fact, of all the words ever written. Because this sentence, according to the New Testament, is the key to understanding how salvation is going to work. So, shall we have a look at it again? Abram believed the Lord 
and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, the Hebrew word for believe is amen. So be it. God said, I will give you offspring like the stars, and despite his age, despite his childlessness, despite the fact that his wife couldn't bear children, Abram's heart went, Amen. So be it. I believe you. And the Lord credited this trust in his promise to Abram as righteousness. Righteousness, declared by God to be in the right, declared to be innocent before God, declared to be pleasing in His sight. When one stands before God, and I hope you can see this is for everybody, right? When one stands before God to give an account of one's life, righteousness is what you need so that you will not be condemned for your sin which you have done. Righteousness is what leads to a person's salvation and eternal life. Now we know that Abram was a sinner like the rest of us. We've only known him for three chapters and he's already done plenty of it. He certainly was not innocent. He had decades of sin. He had decades of false worship to false gods to answer for. But see what this sentence says? Abram believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited it to Abram as righteousness. Now, you know what means what um, being credited with something means, don't you? When someone credits your account it means they put money into it that wasn't there before. So Abram's righteousness was not something that he had earned or stored up by his own efforts or by rigidly keeping some long list of laws. Abram had righteous credited to him by the Lord. He didn't have a righteousness of his own. Because Abram trusted the Lord, took him at his word, the Lord in his grace and kindness gave righteousness to Abram. This is such an important truth. If we get this wrong, we will get salvation wrong. The classic sign we've got salvation wrong is when we falsely think that our own efforts our own attempts at goodness or religious acts are somehow going to win us God's approval. God thinks I'm okay because I do good deeds. God thinks I'm okay because I keep God's rules. Well, most of the time. Well, I try to anyway. Well, I'm better than that guy over there. But the reality is, as Romans 3 tells us, there is no one righteous. Not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. See, the problem that stops people from being in relationship with God is that God is holy and righteous and people are not. And Genesis chapters 1 to 11 has made that very, very, very clear. Humanity's lack of righteousness is why we all face God's judgment and not His blessing. 
So for people from all nations to receive God's blessing, they must become righteous. How can this happen? Well, let's look again at Abram. God considered Abram to be righteous. Why? Because he never sinned? No, because he believed God. He took God at his word. He believed that God had power to do what he said he would do. So, look at what Paul says in Romans 4. Now, this was our second reading earlier. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies, that means to make righteous, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So, in this sense, Abraham is the father of all who believe God's promises, as he did. But the promise that we believe is not the promise of children, but of the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, the great descendant of Abraham. The promise of forgiveness of sin because of Jesus' atoning death in our place and the promise of eternal life because He has risen. So look at the end of, towards the end of chapter 4 of Romans. The words it was credited to Him were written not for Him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification to make us righteous. It is by saying Amen to this promise that is seen in Jesus that you and I will be counted as righteous. In other words, if we trust in Jesus Christ and what He has done, then our sin is taken away and there is nothing left to stand against us. We have now been made righteous. No charge can be brought against us because Jesus can say, it's been paid for, it's all gone. And so, like Abram, it's by believing God, by trusting Him that we're credited as righteous and receive the same blessing from the same God who made all of those promises all of those thousands of years ago. And you want living proof? Look at the thief on the cross, a man who deserved to be killed for his sin at his own admission. And he turns to Jesus in faith. And what does he hear? Today, you will be with me in paradise. You know, Abram was not necessarily the best model for us of morality or even of wisdom, but he certainly is a cracking good one when it comes to faith. God told an old man that he would have numerous descendants from his own body and that old man took God at his word. But God did not just promise Abram descendants, did he? There was also this one about the land. And God is actually the one that reminds Abram that he's made this promise. Look at verse 7. He also said to him, 
I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Saying, remember, I was the one who brought you here, Abram. I was the one who called you here. And I did that so that I could give this land to you to take possession of it. That it might be your land, right? Now, don't forget chapter 14. This land is full of people (laughs) and cities and kings and armies. Abram's just won a pretty important battle over some of them, but that was just one battle. Surely the clock is ticking on this promise too. For the promise, this promise to come to fruition, a lot of things have got to happen. So Abram asks, not so much, I think, a doubting question as a clarifying one. Verse 8, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? What should he be watching out for to signal that the land is about to be his? How is he going to take possession of this land full of people? How is it going to happen? Well, God's response this time is different. He responds by making a covenant with Abram, a, a solemn and formal legal, almost, commitment. And as always happens with covenants, it's accompanied by a sign, a ritual that's full of symbolism and meaning related to the promise that's been given. The meaning of the ritual would have been much clearer to Genesis's earliest readers than it appears to be to us at first glance. And so we need to put ourselves into the Old Testament world to grasp what's going on here properly. Let's walk through it together and we'll see what the symbolism is all pointing to. Verse 9, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. All right, why the different animals? Well, these were all animals that were permitted to be used in Israel's worship later on. These are the ritually clean animals that would be allowed to stand in the place of the people of God when they made sacrifices. Other ones, they weren't allowed to. So the animals are representative of Abram's descendants, the people of God. And so what happens to the animals? Verse 10. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now, why are the animals cut in half? Well, the birds were arranged opposite each other, but not torn themselves, as was required later on in Leviticus. But the symbolism kind of stays the same here. See, what's going on will be understood more as this incident develops. But the significance is not so much the splitting of the animals, but in the fact that a space is being made between them and later on this space is going to be used to show God symbolically moving among them. So, the animals symbolising the people of God are arranged on the ground but Abram's descendants are going to face challenges. Verse 11, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses but Abram drove them away. The birds of prey suggest that Abram's future descendants will appear to be vulnerable, under threat. 
but they will be protected by the Lord's promises to Abram. As symbolised by Abram having to drive away the birds and successfully driving away the birds. Well, how are we going? Are you, are you following it as we build this picture? All right. Well, that was just taxiing along the runway, okay? We're about to take off. Look at verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, it's clear that now something fearsome, terrifying um, and mystical is about to take place. The setting sun, Abram's deep sleep, symbolises the passing of time, takes us into the future after Abram's death. Now, remember Abram's question is about the sign of his possession of the land. The Lord now answers him with a clear foretelling of what is to come. Look at verses 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old, good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God's saying to Abram, you're going to die at a good old age, but you will not see the land become yours. His descendants will take possession of it, but only after three conditions have been met. The first one, their enslavement. 400 years of mistreatment and hardship in a foreign land. Second, their deliverance. Their enslavement will end when the Lord punishes that land and leads them out with great possessions. And third, the evil of the Canaanites themselves, Abram's neighbours, will have reached the point where they deserve to be evicted from the land and for it to be given over to Abram's descendants, the Israelites. So God was always going to give the land to Abram's descendants in fulfilment of his promise, but that would, by necessity, involve clearing it out of the people that are already there. And that was not going to happen until the sin of those people was so wicked that it warranted that and justified that. Now, when those three conditions were met, that would be the sign that Abram's descendants would come back and be given the land. Well, the scene then returns to the place where the sacrifices are laid out and we get the last mysterious sign, verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now remember what I was saying about the first readers of Genesis and who they were. They were Abram's descendants. They were the nation of Israel, recently delivered from 430 years of slavery in Egypt, on the verge of entering the promised land. 
They had witnessed the amazing power of the Lord in punishing Egypt in the ten plagues and, and his leading his people out towards Canaan and the parting of the Red Sea and the provision of manna and quail in the wilderness and the water that came from the rock to quench their thirst in the desert. And now they hear this final dramatic sign that was given to Abram. In images unmistakable for an Israelite who was in a desert being led by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of flame by night, the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch pass between the sacrifices. Clearly pointing to the protective presence of the Lord Himself dwelling amongst His people. So what Moses' hearers were having confirmed to them as they read this was that God was bringing to fruition the promise that He had made those 400 years earlier to Abram. God had foretold it in advance to Abram and that meant something else to them. It meant that the land that they were journeying to was surely about to be given to them. 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And then he gives you this big, long list of all of the nations that are living there, whose land he is going to give those descendants. A whole list of nations that those descendants could see when they were arriving. How can I know? Abram asked. Because I promised, the Lord says. And I will even reveal to you how and when I'm going to do it. For the Israelites on the edge of the promised land, they had seen much of this take place, just as God said it would. And so they had even more reason to trust that God would honour His promise, that He would deliver the land to them when they entered it and to have courage. But we can look back and we can see more than they could see. We can see not only all these promises fulfilled in the history of Israel but we see them fulfilled in the fullest sense in Abraham's greatest descendant Jesus Christ the son of God we can see the Lord delivering a world from its slavery to sin by his death on for us on the cross we stand on the edge of the promised land of heaven of eternal life able to look back and see Jesus resurrection from the dead as a fact of history something that's already happened Will we overcome and end up taking hold of this land that's promised to us? Will the Lord do what He's promised for us? Do we have reason to trust Him? Well, if Abram had reason, if Israel had reason, how much more do we? Now, time marches on. And sometimes we see opportunities for worldly success go by because we've made the choice to do things God's way and to trust Him. When does the passing of time introduce doubts for you? Maybe it's not even doubts so much, but at least when does the passing of time cause your heart to seek some reassurance, a reaffirmation that your hope is rightly placed. See, we don't receive the answer to all of God's promises to us at once, do we? 
you know, as Christians, we do think of what we do have. We do have our God to rely upon in prayer every day. We enjoy a relationship with Him. We enjoy the presence of His Holy Spirit. We enjoy the fellowship of His people. We enjoy the richness of His Word. The gifts that He's given us for serving and growing the kingdom. The blessing of actually knowing the right way to live because God's told us. We have knowledge of a purpose. We've got a hope to live towards in a pretty dark world. But sometimes there are things that make us say, yes, but what can you give me, God, when you haven't yet given me? Sometimes we need to be taken outside, don't we, and shown the stars and reminded that the promise is real even if the passing of time is causing us to question it. Some things remain in the future, don't they? Some things we will only receive in glory and we need to wait for them. And sometimes the good that God is working right now for us who believe, who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose, is not necessarily what we asked for or we're expecting, or pictured for ourselves. Especially if we are experiencing sharply some kind of lack. Maybe it's in a relationship, or the absence of one. Maybe it's in our family life, or the absence of it. Maybe it is in having a place to live, or a place that we own, or a job that we enjoy, or the burden of physical or mental illness. Maybe it's a prayer that we have asked so many times of our God and not, and seems to have gone unanswered. There are times as well when you'll be watching as the world goes on about its business, as your non-Christian peers go about their business, and you are making sacrifices that you know that they're not and you're taking stands that you know they will not and you feel like the nomad in their land as they prosper and you seem to stand still and you're watching the days of your life tick by your one and only life a life that you've entrusted to the care and the guidance of another and that takes faith, doesn't it? That takes belief that God is good and that He knows what He's doing with you and that He will honour His promises to us, that He will be your shield and your very great reward. See, it takes confidence in the power, sovereignty and character of God. It takes faith. But we don't need to be taken out to look at the stars. We don't look to a flaming pot for confidence that God will follow through. We look to God Himself come as a man who has loved us so much that He would die for us on a cross. We are taken outside and we are taken to the Scriptures to look at an empty tomb. We look to a Bible 
that God in His grace has given us that is full of God following through and following through and following through on His promises through generation after generation and millennia after millennia. Abram believed God and he was right to do so. And so are we. And with King David say, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Amen.